Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, a podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. You know, often we think about memories as something that we possess individually. It's like lives inside of my head, lives inside of, of your head, Gary. And, and that's an interesting notion, right? That they're kind of where my memories um, are is here and they kind of stop when I go past me and my physical self. You know, but like as an event happens, we form a representation of it in our minds. We kind of think about okay, what took place. We think about it narratively. We kind of put some of the ideas in order and think about ourselves even as heroes or maybe maybe villains. And you know, perhaps we're able to kind of recall that event later on, um, thinking about what took place. And like, if an event is significant enough in our lives, it sometimes will leave a kind of permanent image that we can really recall it in like the most vivid of details. And this is I think, a really interesting phenomenon um, where it's like, you can just find yourself right back in that moment and describe something as my, you know, minute as the color of the floorboards or the, the texture of, of your shirt or something, you know, and what we might think about like less is how our memories are actually collective. You know, it's like we have the idea that they're individual, but it turns out there's actually this, this interesting element of, of the collective nature of, of memories. And rather than being just ours alone, what we remember and recall is, is actually often created with others and, and certainly with, with society. And at this moment right now in American society, there's been a lot of contested territory, we might say, you know, regarding what is being remembered and, and how. And when we broaden out the voices that are being represented in these collective kinds of memories, the challenge becomes even greater to be inclusive and negotiate memories in these spaces that are, are really kind of contested. To explore a lot of these issues, we welcome to Experience by Design, Julia Biabout, who is the CEO and creative director from the company Novabai. Julie was involved in a project called Monumental Conversations, which occurred in Richmond, Virginia. And this was around the replacement, the taking down of Confederate statues. But it was about a lot more than that, where Julia, Novabai, and others leveraged their collective expertise in the area of augmented reality, working with local community institutions and community members to tell different stories about the place of Richmond its history, and people's shared and collective memories. And she describes herself as on fire for fairness, trying to create engaging experiences that capture the collective memories of community members and to reconstruct place, or as she calls it, placemaking. And placemaking is about the co-creation with the community of meaning and memory and self. And by coming together, and especially with technology, how we're able to achieve these things, how we are able to achieve these experiences that redefine who we are and what a place is all about. And we talked to her about how this becomes in and of itself a memorable experience to both create memories, to create space, to create self, but also create some really cool technology. We talk about what led her to this career especially through her master's degree in Asian studies, her background in architecture and how those things come together, how she came to understand culture and place differently through the time she spent in China, and how unfortunately she never got a chance to meet Mira Servino while they were both in China at the same time approximately. And it's about so much more than that because at a time, as Adam said right now in our society, in American society, space, memory, self-identity is being heavily contested? And is there a way of coming together to represent different voices, different meanings, but do so in a way that rather than causing division, enriches all of our understanding of each other? So we hope you enjoy this really important conversation. Did you ever hear the actress named Mira Sor Sorvino? Yes. You know, I was I was fascinated by your background in speaking um, in, in Chinese and Chinese oh. studies. And she has a background in Chinese. She has a degree in Chinese studies. She, she does? And she's fluent, or she was fluent. She lived in, chi in China, and she's fluent. I know. And I was like, what's, what are the odds of me 
listening to a podcast than recording a podcast with uh, people who are fluent in uh, Chinese. I had no idea. Wow. I figured we might be buddies. Uh, apparently, yeah, yeah. Well, we're, I'm, I'm working on it. She's not returning my calls yet, but you know. <laughs> so, I've, well, you know, what was the, what was the motivation to start studying? Asian studies with a certificate in Chinese studies at Florida International. I wouldn't, I wouldn't put the, all that together. Going to Florida International and majoring in Asian studies and then Chinese studies. Yes. Well, um, I will say um, Florida International University lives up to their name. Okay. Yeah, it is uh, an incredible place. Um, I, I, I joke, but not it's not completely joking that I got. Um, trained with my undergraduate degree in architectural engineering, and I got educated with my master's degree in Asian studies. Mm. And it's not so much a reflection of the schools uh, as it is the subject matters, but just in terms of, I feel like how my, you know, the different ways of thinking and different ways of, um, you know, different amount of exposure and problem solving and everything like that. So, um, yeah, and actually, um, yeah, it is a little counterintuitive. I mean, not a big surprise. Florida International University is, has a very strong uh, Latin American studies. You know, that's what people would expect. But we are fortunate that actually one of our professors, the person that founded the Asian Studies Department at um, FIU, uh, actually uh, came from Penn State, my other alma mater. And he is a world-renowned expert in Japan studies. And so that was really where they got their start. And um, grounding is in Japanese studies, and they're still extremely strong in that. But also um, uh, China and Chinese studies. So, yeah, great, I watch- I had great professors there. I was watching a documentary on Netflix called uh, Age of the Samurai. Uh-huh. I, did, I did not know I needed to know so much about medieval Japan, but it turns out I did because I was like watching this thing going, oh, good Lord, have mercy. What was going on? Uh, well, and that is really what Dr. Stephen Heim is our, our department head founder. And um, that's really where his specialty is, is in that era. And then also particularly in, in um, Zen Buddhism. So okay. he's won like medals and awards and everything from the Japanese government and yeah, really a well-respected scholar in that area. So it was watching the documentary. I don't know if you've seen. No, it's a docudrama, docu series, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you've seen it. But you know these these kinds of specials that are on more and more. There was one about pirates in um, the Caribbean and a, a bunch of other ones. And it, it does create oh. as, as an educator watching these things. Right, it's entertainment. There's you know. Um, relationships between men and women and all kind of court intrigue and all this other stuff. But at the same time, you're learning something. Mm-hmm. And it makes me think about, you know, the modalities of learning and, and educating, going back to your point, you know, getting trained versus educated and how, and how we're, how people conceptualize media and education, which I know is, you know, right up the alley of Nova Bay, right. But mm-hmm. watching these shows, it's like, I never knew I'd be interested in this. If you give me a book on, ancient medieval Japan, I might read it. I might not, I might not be taken with it, but watching the series was legit interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Yeah. I think, you know, for, for me, the, um, the Asian studies and just, you know, really what I kind of specialized in is what I called worldview and collective memory theory and just kind of learning how people um, develop their paradigms for thinking. And, um, you know, I'm very much of a fan of applied, applied learning. And so it's, you know, it's kind of, you could look at Asian studies as a, as a lens or way to see, learn that in an applied way. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, they're very, it's like, you know, a fish doesn't know he's in a fishbowl, right? Right. So it's like, until you kind of try on another mindset or learn, learn another history that is very informative for mindsets. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to really appreciate and that you, you have a given one, right? Because we're so close to the problem. Right. 
And, um, you know, I studied abroad, actually, um, quite a number of times in high school and um, then undergraduate and then again in graduate. And every single one, um, and I give a shout out to the U.S. State Department. Thank you. They, they provided for some of my study abroads and certainly my language training. But every single one has been a, uh, you know, life changing, mind bending, life changing experience and largely life changing because it is so mind bending. And so kind of getting to, you know, your area of expertise, too, of anthropology. I, mean, I think that's always joke. I'm a wannabe cultural anthropologist. And that truly has done more. I, I use I use that what I learned in Asian studies, particularly collective memory theory worldview, like every single day. Right. And so it made me, I feel better able, able to navigate life um, and understand, I think particularly getting to your point about media um, today, like in this, you know, incredibly like prolific media landscape, like too, almost too much, right? We have too, met, too much, too many media channels now. Um, you know, it, it gives you a way to get some distance, some mental and emotional distance to what you're hearing and, and approach it more analytically that I think without my background um, that or my education that I got in that in that realm, um, I wouldn't be able to do as, as well. So um, and then, you know, in terms of how that relates to the work that we do, obviously, I'm using kind of the spatial background, spatial education and training and technical training I got um, with my architectural engineering undergrad um, every day. But in terms of the goals we're trying to accomplish with our projects, there are definitely much more in the other realm of helping people to see things in a different way. Uh, we largely like to do that by presenting them with additional information that they may not have had before yeah. um, about, you know, we're particularly in the culture, history, heritage arena, um, or maybe they just hadn't really thought about it um, and give them that kind of bring things together. I think juxtaposition is a really um, strong uh, pedagogical tool of bringing disparate things together right. and then leaving it up to the the individual to wrestle with the integration of those things and melding them together. So, and I'm just realizing that's probably very Zen Buddhist. Right. But that kind of, um, uh, yeah, Dr. Hein would be probably happy about that, but um, that, you know, I think it's more interesting. It, 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 you know, you're not, you're not, you're allowing, uh, allowing the, the, the user in our case, the participant, which I generally think of, our experiences as we have participants in them, you know, allowing them to leaving space for them to do the work as well and bring their imagination to what they're, what they're participating in. There's, there's so many interesting threads there. And one of them that it makes me think about is this notion of going back to education and media. When I think about my job and you must think about it with your job, I'm competing with other modalities of education, whether or not I want to, right? And so when people think about, you know, who are our competitors at the university I teach at, they'll name off other universities. And I'll say, no, our competitors are YouTube, LinkedIn Learning, Netflix, because, you know, yes, they might be giving us their money and tuition, but we're competing for their attention with these other things. And also how we create learning experiences and engagement, I have to think about it in terms of those other areas of engagement in order to then modify what it is that I'm doing to bring folks along. So, wow. So that's so interesting. Um, Right. Yeah, I think definitely everybody's gotten so used to kind of this exciting multimedia, you know, certain presentation formats, modalities, and um, that's really uh, interesting to think about how that begins to possibly infiltrate or warp, in a sense, um, traditional teaching uh, in a traditional teaching environment. So what, what have you found? Like, what do you do with your students? Well, it's, it's you know, rather than yeah, number one, um, I, you know, I think beyond the students, and this is why I live stream on Twitch, and this is why I do like the podcasting and whatnot, and also do some other content creation that I've done for clients, um, working on a project right now that might involve some content creation. 
and you can have the best material in the world, but if you don't create it in an engaging way, it may not matter much because we, we don't live in a world where I can expect people to come to me mm. and wade through the pages and pages and pages that I wrote. They need to be able, I need to bring something to them to kind of hook them in. Yeah. And so it's, it's, you know, whether it's on TikTok and I don't have a TikTok because I don't have time for that right now, but you know, there's some great educators doing work on TikTok. Yeah. You know, some great educators yeah. Yeah. doing work on Twitch or Twitter or whatever it is. And at least doing what I would call this public scholarship, public education, mm-hmm. engaging people where they're at versus requiring them to, you know, pay tuition to get beyond a paywall. Yeah. So, you know, I'm still experimenting, but I, I do start to think about AR. I do start to think about VR and, you know, well, how, how might we use those things to create engagement and, and touch points? We actually had a guest on our um, podcast Max Larusa, who is in the Netherlands, who does a lot of work in caves and VR. Oh, oh, wow. Very cool. I think I've heard of him, but I, I have to check out what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. So I'm actually just going to real quick before we go into AR, um, give a shout out. That's a good point for the TikTok, because I, I actually have never really been much of a social media fan um, yeah. or user. Right. But TikTok has gotten me. Oh, I, really? I mean, like as early as March 2020, that was one of the first things I discovered in the pandemic. And um, and a lot of that is one, it's I think overall has been a very positive place. The content has changed a lot, even just in the last year and a half. But um, I actually feel like I've learned a lot sure. on TikTok. And a lot of that is exactly like you say, it's like. And it's a very digestible format, too, dig- too digestible. Indigestion. <laughs> yeah, after I've been sitting there for two hours and don't realize two hours have, have passed. But, but um, you know, I, I, like, t- I, I hear you. I mean, like, I feel like I've gained, um, you know, to the extent that people are willing to share and keeping in mind that it's all, you know, they're packaging it in a certain way, a lot about different worldviews. And a lot about different perspectives and cultures that, um, you know, I, it's hard to get that level of intimacy of people sharing their thoughts. Um, it's amazing what people will tell you on a video versus, yeah. in person, you know, so a little bit of a confessional type of medium that that really does, I think, help provide, um, you know, some valuable insight um, into the way people are thinking about things and has helped me understand some areas that, you know, uh, for sure. So anyway, in terms of AR, I digress there. with. No, it's not a digression. I don't think it's a digression. I think it's like right yeah. on point, actually. And, you know, just to kind of hit on that a little bit more, you know, this, you know, the idea of changing perspectives and paradigms. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do we form perceptions and how do we, it makes me think of, you know, I mean, I, one of the things, one of the tools I use a lot in classes are, are gestalt images. Mm-hmm. Like you can look at the same object and see it different way based on how you orient to specific elements of that object. Right. So now think about it from a person's positionality. Yes. You yeah. Know, look, you know, so forget about looking at different parts of the object. Now think about if you have different people looking at the same object. Right. It's the same object, but it reveals itself in different ways based on any number of factors. And whether it's TikTok, Twitch, Twitter, you know, Snapchat, what, you know, Facebook, forget about because it seems like that thing's a dumpster fire. But this idea of trying to, because people have been able to hack it in a way to change perceptions and perspectives right. it, with, with a certain kind of uh, nefarious intentionality yeah. to cause mayhem. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Interesting. Well, and I think that's, you know, particularly I'm obviously biased with AR um, and we're mobile phone based AR in particular. And um, but I think that's that's part of what's so what so many um, people that deal in story storytellers. I don't really consider myself a storyteller like that's not a, a, a word that I feel comfortable describing myself because I'm very bad at linear narratives. <laughs> But maybe that's like, I, I've always considered myself a very bad storyteller, but I, I really enjoy sharing information with people and, and being having information shared with me and different, different perspectives, like you said, literal, literal and, you know, figurative little uh, different, different views. Right? right. And, and then, and so I think that's what AR is so great at and um, has so much potential still. Uh, I think everybody's still, ourselves included, we're learning on every single project we do, you know, and um, 
trying to carry that knowledge forward. Um, but I think that that's what people really uh, are excited, including us, about AR is this kind of Rashomon storytelling potential of it and that it doesn't have to be like even Rashomon, right, is a linear narrative, right? Like it's it's four different perspectives. If I haven't watched it a long time, I think there's four in there. I don't remember. But you know, they're told in a serial format, right? And that 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 itself, even in itself, can affect how you um, perceive and and believe certain yeah. certain narratives. And um, and so I think AR, like and VR too, like it just kind of breaks that down such that the per the the viewer becomes a participant, and they're not um, necessarily um, you know. Uh, stuck with a given order, right? Which can affect how you, your perception. Um, the challenge of the con to those is that at least like with our experiences, like we, we generally create what I call a two tier structure where there's kind of a, a short, you know, 30 second to minute kind of intro of a story. And then this viewer can interact with that story in some way and go to a second deeper level of story, which we, is generally more like two minutes long. And these are audios is what I'm saying. And, um, you know, they may or may not choose to do that. Right. So you, you don't have, because you don't have control over the order, it, it can be more challenging to sure. try to create a full picture. And so that's something we're always kind of having to like, um, figure out how do we kind of like TikTok, right? how do we, how do we get these things down to bite size, right. bite size content that a people will want to engage with. So we're always like, is this click worthy, you know, right. <laughs> and then, and then, you know, how do we, it's really hard. It's interesting. Like, especially given like our, our projects tend to engage with a lot of history and like, you know, trying to boil down, 400 years of history and into two minute sound bites is, you know, really hard. Like we've had, we've had professional writers like run away crying. Like it's just so, so hard. And then, you know, but you, and you really have to realize like that the curatorial, like we're making all these right. full disclosure curatorial decisions in and of ourselves. Right. And so, um, you know, just being really careful about that and then helping people hopefully just get these different perspectives and can draw draw their own conclusion about them or or really what we would hope is they would it would just spur their curiosity and they would investigate things further because it's impossible to to get 400 years of history into two minutes so <laughs> i was just talking about i was doing a live stream earlier today and for some you know and usually you talk about non-linear we just you know ricochet all over the place but one of the things that came up, and it's not the first time, is we were talking about um, well, someone in the in the chat was serving in, in the Marines, and so they brought up something about World War II, and then I mentioned that I had done I've been doing like this deep dive into World War II in the Pacific, and that ended up talking about the uh, the antecedent events that caused U.S. engagement in World War II, and usually we've been taught growing up as Americans that Pearl Harbor. You know, the Japanese just attacked Pearl Harbor. Well, did anybody stop to wonder in our education, why did the Japanese attack Pearl right. Harbor? And right. then you learn about the oil embargo. And then you learn about Jap Japan trying to develop their economy beyond being like, you know, be modernized and become an industrial power by not having oil, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And you get all this massive history that becomes important for place setting and story and memory and understanding yeah. perspective. But yet it usually comes down to Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, right, right. Then that is, you know, that's really, I, I agree with you. It's like we need these kind of, at least for myself anyway, these kind of mental milestones to like form this information around. And so it's like these these anchors, right? So Pearl Harbor is like this mental right. anchor, right? And, and shorthand for right. all other stuff but you know i think that the challenge is trying to always be cognizant that that is just an anchor you know it's not the whole story and yeah right and you know there you know the idea of positionality and i, I think you probably run into some some challenges because you don't want to necessarily by creating awareness of different positions necessarily create empathy for bad actors or people who might be considered bad actors but yet how do we 
give voice to different perspectives without seeming like we're excusing or sympathizing with a particular point of view. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yes. I was actually just talking <laughs> this morning <laughs> else about that and something we really wrestle with, especially I think in the, in the, the climate today of, of, you know, you, um, you know, just have, you know, you want to be careful about what you say and, and that's reasonable, but, you know, talking about that, I was talking about that today with actually on the monumental conversations project that we worked on right. and, um, which for your listeners, they don't know is um, a 1.2 mile um, kind of audio visual uh, walking tour that we designed um, with Richmond public schools and the Richmond community um, that runs along Arthur Ashe Boulevard and Monument Avenue um, in Richmond, Virginia. And it's kind of considered ground zero for what's known as the lost cause narrative, um, which says that the Civil War was not really about slavery, that it was about all these other things and really kind of lionized um, General Lee and all of the other folks. So um, and it's kind of ground zero for that. And um, and, you know, what I was saying, kind of getting to to your point there is, um, you know, it's very I'm not I don't make. It, 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 it's deplorable. I mean, when I learned more and more about the history, right. it's deplorable how, um, uh, you know, completely not as surprised, infused with racist ideology and had, you know, malicious intents and stuff. So it's easy to um, demonize these people. And there certainly were plenty of bad actors, right? right. I'm not making any excuses for that. But, um, you know, if we, if we just say these are bad people, then um, we don't really learn anything from that, right? right. And what is these were maybe, you know, some bad people, some decent people, some good people trying to do something that, um, again, not trying to make excuses, but like if we don't recognize that um, what the popularity that, that, that those ideas had, certainly racist ideas, but you know, what these people were trying to do was rationalize, uh, internalize a really difficult loss that they'd yeah. had personal, economic, military in every yeah. way. Right. And um, and so if we don't and that's that's a normal, natural human instinct. Right. Is to figure out how to integrate negative events into our lives, into our, the story of our lives so that we can process them and move, move on. And so if we don't recognize that, that that's kind of at the fundamental, uh, what's happening at the, at the base, I'm not saying they went about it the right way or anything like that, then we just repeat that again, sure. right? So we have, so the solution, and that's what we tried to do on that project and try to do on our projects is to understand that and accept that these are natural human ways of coping. And if you're not in to be really cognizant of that and make sure you're being intentional that when, you know, you are kind of developing these stories, you're being intentional about being inclusive and bringing other, other people into the process so that their narratives are also in there. And then the other thing that we're, we hope and try to do that um, is not just leave it at these multiple threads, right? Cause I think AR, VR are very good at that. Right. But the work that we need to do as a society that I think social media has made more challenging is to integrate those narratives, right? Like how I'm not saying there just has to be one, all different perspectives is good, but it takes work. It takes relational work to weave these into for everybody to feel that they're seen and heard in a common narrative. And it takes work to make that happen. Right. And and so that's really what we're we you know what we're trying to achieve is is not just leave it as everybody has their own story, which is great. We want to hear it, but how do we how do we bring these together into a single song, you know, or somebody this morning used the word harmonize. And I was like, that's I really like that analogy. How do we get these to harmonize so that then we're we're working together, you know? Right. And I, I, you know, it reminds me a little bit of the, there was a situation in the state of Texas where 
and this has been happening in many states where the instructions are, you know, you have to, whenever you discuss everything, anything, you have to talk about both sides. Number one, I hate that because there's usually more than, or two right. sides. Right. Someone said, and one of the teachers pushed back, and I don't know if you saw this news story because it was recorded, the conversation was recorded. One of the teachers pushed back and said, well, what about if we're talking about Nazi Germany? Mm-hmm. Well, it's important you, 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 you talk about both sides. And they're like, both sides? It's not like... Right. You know, Hitler was a hell of an industrialist. Discuss. I mean, you know, it's like you, it's hard yeah. to excuse or rationalize. You know the you know the good traits of of you know somebody. Not that Hitler had good traits, but you know what I mean. This idea that we can't, you know, the 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 the, the potential to get stuck in, mm-hmm. you know, you know, cultural relativism. Yeah. Say that yeah. you know. Well, you know, there were good things and bad things, and it's up for everybody individually to decide right. what you know where they are. You're like, no. No, and I, I, I'm right there with you. I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest that. Yeah, that I know you're not. All narratives are okay, and there are judgments, judgments to be made. Well, I think this is <laughs> a point, right? Right? There's evaluations to be made, but we need to right. make those as a group. And that's kind of what I'm saying, that that evaluative work needs to be done, right? And, and if we just leave it all as independent strings of narratives, that evaluative, evaluative, evaluation is not happening. Well, yeah. I think that's a really fascinating point because I've been thinking about, you know, the ways, because being a sociologist and Adam, an anthropologist, we approach experience design from a more of a collective systems approach, yes. which is an individual cognitive one, right? Yes. And this idea that uh, an experience is not just had individually, but it's also had in relation to other people experiencing this thing as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as George Herbert Mead would say, even if I'm experiencing it by myself, I'm still experiencing it as a member of society. And yeah. so the ways in which we as a society, a group, a culture, whatever, come to terms with a topic like slavery or mm-hmm. like World War II or like whatever it is, right? Or the Me Too movement and right. you know, the, or you know, people who are, are trans or whatever, right? This, whatever it is we're talking about, how do we as a society come to terms with this, not from individual positionality and perspective, but something that can be agreed upon as a narrative, which ties it all together. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm drawing a blank when there's to say, so within collective memory um, theory of the school of thought, um, and I can't remember which scholar it is, even has, has put forth the, the premise that there is no individual memory. Uh, okay, interesting. Like, taking that other extreme that they're like, and I, I think we can all relate to that to some degree that a lot of times, especially like our very young memories, I'm like, am I remembering that really? Or because because somebody's told me that happened and I'm actually remembering what I'm actually remembering their memory of it. And so I I, I really like that. I'm not sure I completely agree with right. it, but I think the notion is really, really interesting that there is no individual uh, individual memory there they've all been given to us you know or shared you know right this one sociologist named tamatsu shibutani talked about you know rumor as a collective sense making ah right? yes yes yeah. i love that it's a great book that i read back when i was doing my dissertation on improvised news it's called the book's called improvised news and it's this idea sociology of rumor where we're looking at how people make sense of things together in the absence of other explanations. Yes. Yes. And and I think that, you know, harking back again to the monumental conversations, uh, that's what I feel was really going on, you know? And, and so it's like, yeah. And I, it's really about that. I like that the term sense-making collective sense-making. I think that's really, really what we're, we're trying to help people do, you know, um, is let's, let's talk about this and figure it out. How does that work when people might be on their phones individually looking Mm -hmm. at these, like something like the monumental conversations project, how do you get them to engage with one another if they're buried in their devices separately? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think one of the things that we like about mobile AR in particular is people do tend to do it with others in the real world. Right. So, um, you know, especially especially experiences that are not um, uh, audio heavy, meaning like there's not a narrative. Right. But even even then we've seen it. So like it's it's not unusual to see 
two, three, and four people literally sidecarring on one phone. Okay. And that's, that's part of what we love, right? Um, that being said, uh, you know, obviously not everybody's doing that. And depending how much ambient noise there is, you know, certain, certain locations, you need earphones to be able to make out the audio just like you would any other audio. And so those tend to be more, more individual experiences. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think it, they happen both ways. I think what, what we also try to do is, again, like um, in an ideal world, we're presenting the, these, these, this information that maybe they were not aware of previously. So, for example, in Monumental Conversations, we're really telling stories that have been um, stories, the community stories. So I want to make that very clear. These are not our stories. They're the right. These stories, the communities have designed these stories, they've voiced them. We have worked with them uh, very deeply to do that, but um, certainly just want to make that that clear. Um, so, but they're stories that really are have been undertold um, for 150 years, right? And for me, the transformation was once I knew these stories, like they went so I don't want to say against, but we're just not told as part of my personal American history education. And I was educated in Philadelphia. So, you know, squarely in the Northeast, right? Right. It was was shocking to me to realize how much even my my history education in in high school in particular, which is when we covered the Civil War, um, was influenced by these lost cause narratives and, you know, hop, skip, jump over reconstruction. (laughs) And I think that's the problem and everybody's revisiting that. But anyway, I'm sorry, I got off topic here. Um, So what we try to do is a present this information that I, you know, I think most people were not familiar with and um, have not been taught. And then we also try to ask questions, right? So again, we're not trying to say, Hey, this is, this is what you should think. Um, but here's some information and here's a question. Here's a, here's a reflection question for you and hopefully share, share out, you know, we give them hashtags and whatnot to essentially share out their, their thoughts and reactions um, to that. So um, bringing in the social media world in that, in, in that sense. So. Right. You, you, you talk about reconstruction and it reminds me of just recently when people started talking about the, the, the Greenwood massacre in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And this, this idea of there was basically the black wall street was in this community. It was all black owned. There was these black businesses, this thriving commerce. And then it was, you know, summarily destroyed in a planned and mm-hmm. strategized effort that involved law enforcement as right. well as, right. you know, deputized quote unquote deputized, um, you know, vigilante groups. And you just, you know, who I, I knew about it because I taught a course in immigrant entrepreneurship where I talked about black entrepreneurship, wow. but it wasn't like something I learned in school. And then there no. was a lot of imagine what this looked like back then. Mm-hmm. And then you imagine this is, this is where it goes into perception, right? Imagine the number of generations wealth that were lost as a result of this, because someone owned a business and then their children could have owned that business and the cumulative wealth Imagine how great that would be. And so now we're getting people to manage an alternative future yeah. that could be possible, if not for this structural racism and destruction yeah. of a community. And that's mm-hmm. where I do think something like AR and this like yeah. comes in, right? And I think, yeah, like that's really um, was kind of my, I was not taught any of that stuff. Like I said, we just, oh, Civil War, hop, skip, jump over <laughs> over to 1900, whatever. Right. And I had no idea really, I mean, you're, you're more the expert here, I'm sure, than I am. But I had no idea how successful construction, reconstruction yeah. was. Too successful. And that was the problem. Now, exactly. <laughs> and I was taught, oh, gosh, that didn't work, you know. <laughs> and, and Some people. <laughs> right, right, and so that's really kind of a lot of the history. I mean, my life-changing point was uh, Henry Louis Gates Jr.'s uh, right. 
PBS series on reconstruction. I, I'm, I'm like a reformed smoker going around telling everybody to watch this thing. And um, yeah, so I think that's really, that's exactly the kind of information we're trying to, time, trying to get out there um, for people, you know, to fill in the holes. And I think, you know, once you, it, I don't know, it's, it's hard for me to imagine. So, so I, I guess my own personal journey on on this project and and everything was I thought I understood systemic racism before I thought I knew what it was before doing this project and then I'm like oh my god I had no idea and like the rabbit hole goes so deep and um things like you're talking about with the with the massacre and in, in Virginia like one of the things to me that is so stunning amongst many others was that um the 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 white elites um you know convened a a, a what do you call that um, constitutional convention um of course there were no blacks involved right. in that and and they they passed a new constitution without putting it to public vote sure like, that's like, how democracy works like i mean like, <laughs> like from where we i think that's it it's like and then that proscribed blacks from being able to vote for the next 70 years right, right? so i think it's hard i'm sure Many Black Americans would be like, uh huh, yeah. So, right, yeah. So it's my. I recognize this is my own, my own uh, revelation uh, issue. But um, yeah. So I think like it's hard for me. It, it, two things. One, I think it's just like so hard for us to, to where we sit today to like be like, what? Like, how would that be possible? Right. Uh, but it, but it was, and it happened, and you know, and how much it still impacts today right? right that's really you know that's kind of the other angle that we really try to do that again is kind of rooted in collective memory theory that um history is not really about history it's always about the present and so we're always trying to you know help people see the past in the present and you know and the future and so how do if 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 the present if the past wasn't what we wanted then the present probably isn't either right. and, and and then how do we change that how do we you know what are the next steps to to make to make this different so one of the things that uh, switching gears a little bit on that i wonder looking at all the work that nova by does because i you know I, I i didn't play video games from about mike tyson knockout in 1989 up until like a year ago and so you know there are all these videos you know, you said you did or did not? Did not. No, I didn't touch a video game for like since 1989 until about, you know, two years ago or a year ago. And then when I'm on Twitch, I'm watching video games and I start to get very interested in, you know, how can we use video games as educational tools to create greater awareness about certain kinds of social topics or themes? Mm. And I know that Nova Buy does work in the video game industry. And it's, it's mm. really incredible when I show pe people pictures of what, these backgrounds or what these environments look like. It's astonishing. I was yeah. showing some artists the other day who are just tremendous artists. I was showing them pictures of like the last of us too. And they were going, that's, that, that's not a picture. I'm like, no, it's a video game. They're like, that's how is that possible? I'm like, you have no right. idea. So the work that you all do there around video games and along with this idea of embedding some of these socially relevant, socially conscious, quote unquote, woke narrative in video game in order to not so much over the, you know, beating someone over the head with, here's the history, but mm -hmm. to get them to have an awareness or even just the cultural features of the architecture, the costume, the clothing, the ways yeah. in which Norse mythology is being used, Roman mythology is being used. Even yeah. you know, Asian, you know, I say I don't like using the word Asian because it's a continent, not a people. But whether right. it's Japanese or Chinese or right. whatever, you know, mythology right. being used to be the core of these gaming narratives. Yeah. Uh, well, one thing I'm just going to say is like I I hope like I don't feel we're we're a woke narrative. What I say is we are on fire for fairness, right? And that's like that. that's fire what it. For fairness. Like, comes down to at least for me personally and that, that that's what i mean by like i think if you present people i think most people have an innate sense of fairness right and that that is culturally dependent but but i don't know in my trial it travels fairness seems to be pretty universal and the intuitions seem to be pretty pretty similar right so right. um you know, to me, I think, and, and so when you're presented with this information that's 
really undergirds people's natural sense of fairness, I think they can see see that this is not right and want to correct that. So that's really, that's kind of our, our angle and in, in that. Um, getting to your, your other, so, so I will say we do a lot, we do a lot in AR and we're doing a lot in real world. Um, so mixed reality, which um, is for us really exciting. Uh, we do do full environments and, you know, I, what's, what's interesting is it's like all this stuff that has, um, been going on in kind of the gaming industry for a long time and is not new, doesn't feel new to us. Right. What's, what's new is we're now able to do it on our mobile phone right. and in real world space. But for most people that have not been, you know, dealing with the technology and underlying um uh, well, underlying technologies, in particular Unity and, and Unreal, it feel it's like mind blowing, and it yeah. was too. I mean, I, I when I started, I mean, you know, I'm I'm coming from a previous life in building design and construction, so architectural engineering, and um, you know, so I've been living in 3D cyberspace for since the mid to late 80s. You know, yeah. that kind of transformation happened a really long time ago, and that's kind of the transformation that's now coming here. But so even for me, though, um, you know, moving into the Unity world, the game design world or the, the, the technologies that enable that has been pretty, pretty mind blowing. It hasn't been for, you know, our, our artists and my partners, that's the world they, they came up in. And, and so it's really about deploying things in a different way um, is, is, is the difference in our world. But yeah, I think for most people don't realize that, you know, much of what they even see on their TV screen these days is not real. Right. Like okay. very few car commercials out there that are real. Right. Like the whole thing or much of it is simulated. Um, and once you know, once you know, you'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, hey, there's no way that that could be real. But, you know, they kind of, you know, uh, depends on that. But yeah, so much of much of what we see in print, on web, on TV increasingly is not real. And um even more so now, I mean, the Unreal Engine in particular and Unity's, you know, chomping at their heels um, is really moving into the movie industry. So, you know, I think most people are familiar with green screen, right. you know, and, and motion capture technology. And this is kind of taking it to a whole nother, another level, like where, um, you know, it's just a fully simulated environment. And it is amazing the level of realism you can achieve. That level of realism generally is not available yet in mobile AR um, and even VR, but, you know, it's getting better all the time. Um, and then um, I think getting to your point of the social, social messages and stuff. So one thing that's interesting, you mentioned with the costumes is like we we tend not to do people okay um you know and i that's a lot of that is just my you know as a creative director personal preference and what when it is is you know it, it is you know it, it's it you know you get into it's really hard to be inclusive, right? Like, cause you've got to make choices, but the other is like, I still think avatars are super creepy. <laughs> so, avatars so, are creepy? Yeah. So a lot of it is just an artistic choice. And, and we really want um, so far that the types of experiences we've been dealing with um, have not been, um, you know, it, 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 it hasn't been, focused where like you've got this character that you want talking to the person, you know? So um, we, that's not something we've been having to deal with too much. It's really more about presenting them with fun and, or I don't say fun, but engaging content right. that is relevant to the story. And, and I really like, again, these are kind of creative choices because there's lots of different ways to go about these things. Um, AR, we, we like kind of what I say, more of a stage play approach to content, again, because we're working in real world as our background most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so kind of um, 
So in, in my opinion, you know, if you go, if we compare, say, a movie to a stage play, right? Like a movie, I would say is like, you know, it's fully explicit, right? Like you're given all the information that the director or whomever wants you to have. It's a fully defined experience. Whereas, you know, in a stage play, um, you know, in my, in my opinion, they're equally immersive, but for different reasons in a stage play, you know, they can't afford to, it's not physically possible, whatever, um, give you a fully explicit scene. You're always aware of, what you know where you are but it doesn't necessarily mean it's in my opinion less immersive because bringing your imagination you're requiring the viewer to do work right to do imaginative work and um and so to me that makes it very sometimes even more immersive and so we we tend to gravitate towards that end of the spectrum where we're not not giving you everything we're giving you key pieces that again hopefully enable you to put together a puzzle that makes sense to you Mm. You know, as we're talking about the immersive element of it, especially on AR, I, I don't know if you've seen the documentary. It's uh, it's with the band Oasis at uh, Nebworth, their concert in Nebworth, 1996. And this is on Paramount Plus or something like that. So I was folding laundry and watching this concert because I like Oasis. And it also had interviews with people who were at the concert. Again, this is 1996. For those too young to remember, we did have computers, but we, we we weren't all connected to our phones in the same kind of way as we are today. And one of the things that people at the con- at the concert said, we were watching the concert together at the same time. We weren't all looking at it through our phones, trying to tweet it out or send yeah. it out to other people. Right. It was about all of us watching and orienting to this thing all together, immersed in it at once. Yes. That's shared experience. Exactly. And they and people were talking about this level of shared experience with 125,000 other people. Mm-hmm. And 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 how they all came there together and like it was like this almost communal kind of thing, despite the fact that there were so many people there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's something that. Um, well, in, in some ways, I think COVID has made people realize that again, right? And um, while we were able to stay very connected virtually, you know, um, you know, and I don't want to discount that, obviously, but but uh, yeah, that that shared experience in the real world is really there's something different about it. And know? then listening to people tell their stories about going there, which were all different. But at yeah. the same time, they all came together to culminate in the same thing. So they were all shared. And I think it goes into this just because we share a memory or we share an experience doesn't mean it has to be all the same. Uh, yeah. It orients to its conclusion in the same kind of way. There was like a, there's a quote I use from, um, I forgot, I'm not blanking, I think Emerson, uh, something to, or it might be Dewey, that he said something to the effect of, you know, an experience is had when it's run its course to its conclusion. Oh, right. And it's like, well, you know, the experience ended when we all went home, mm. but we, and we all went home separately. We all got there separately, but the process through which we got there, went home and the thing we had together, which was why we all came together in the first place was shared. Yeah. And so even though it was a separate experience, they were a common experience as, as expressed the storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, fascinating. I love that. Definitely. So I think that's agreed. I mean, that's what we're after is something that people can share in the real world, you know, so um, a little counterintuitive that, you know, technology can do that. But I think that's what does make AR, AR mobile AR different, you know, is this, it is a shareable technology, literally. And I think with the AR, if I can speak for it, you know, it is, a, it, it does become a point that people arrive at. Now that you might have different stories, you might be approaching from different points in your life, but like the monumental conversations, there is a point, mm-hmm. there is a thing to see. There is yeah. a conclusion that you are constructed based upon yeah. fairness and history and yeah. story and understanding and, and, and what you want to convey. And right. it's like the same kind of thing. We can all arrive at this shared agreed upon point. And even yeah. though we're all different people, we still have a, a common core that we can, we can we can organize and and orient around. Yes, agreed. Well, and I think too, like that's a really good, really good point. I mean, I'm not trying to say like we're, you know, that tour or anything else. Like we're 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 all biased, right? And we all bring right. 
angle that we're presenting and telling a story in. And so, you know, our gauge, I, I, I kind of distinguish between accuracy and truth. So I'm, mm-hmm. we're fortunate, I really, um, we're fortunate we had like literally world-renowned scholars on this stuff um, in addition to the community members um, on that project. Um, and Ed Ayers and, and Ben Campbell, uh, just shout out to them as well. And so, I, you know, I've learned the importance really of, of having historians, you know, or experts combined with the community. Because uh, one thing I think we we realized very quickly is that that the community, um, they some there was varying levels of knowledge, right, about this history in the community, um, and they but they all had a general sense, right? They and but they didn't know the specifics, right? And so, but the specifics are important, and it's hard to make a case without the specifics. And so, combining the you know the, this expert with the um, common understanding was really important for um, telling what I say a truthful narrative, right? So there's accuracy, you know, do you have the dates and actual events correct, right? And then then are you telling it in a truthful way, right? Like that you're not skewing it, um, you know, because truth truth requires judgment, right? And so, um, and then finally, I, I always say like, but it's okay to have an angle, Right. Like there's okay to have an agenda. Right. As long as you're not violating that truthfulness, there's nothing wrong with having a position, you know, presenting an angle or perspective. And so I'm not trying to say, you know, I do feel we achieved we achieved accuracy. Uh, If not, please let us know. We're always willing to. Um, uh, and I, I, I feel confident, um, given the experts we had on the project, that we achieved truthfulness. Right. Um, and balance. Um, but we certainly are presenting a perspective, you know, that these stories, it's not OK that these stories were have not been told. They need to be told. And, you know, we we hope that upon telling them, you will evaluate the information and maybe change some hearts and minds and and some feet and action. So that's kind of what we hope. And I'm on your website. I'm looking at it right now that you have, you have a lot of your AR projects. Is there anything that's, you know, beyond the things that you have accomplished that you're working on right now that are like, wow, this is, you know, I mean, you can talk about it to the extent you can talk about it, but is yeah. there anything right now that you're looking at and you see as a really important piece in, in this mission? Um, I would say the other piece, the other project we've been like super, super proud of, I guess, is the Blackhawk um, experience live, live at the Blackhawk there. Also the AMP, the AIDS, the, I think they're on the top three row there, the AIDS Memorial Pathway. So those are all very, like, very squarely what we call placemaking projects that they, so we distinguish, um, excuse, stop me if I'm repeating myself, um, uh, we distinguish between placemaking and space activations. So both are great. Both have you know, reasons to do them, but space activity, they, they can make look, the end product can look very similar, right? Yeah. Or be the same. It's the process about how you get there. And so space activations are generally one directional, meaning it's, it's us or the artist or creator kind of producing something that might be very informed by the community, but they're producing it. Um, and creating an installation. Um, And so placemaking, the way we define it, not everybody defines it the same way, is um, very much about co-creation with the community. Um, And so all of those those three projects were created with the community. So we we generally try to follow the the adage that there's nothing about us without us, right? And so we are generally... You know, to, to do that kind of work, you basically have to be invited into the community to do it, right? And we um, we were blessed on all of those projects to to have that. Um, the Blackhawk project we had been working in that neighborhood for since 2017, so we had a lot of relationships, understood the neighborhood, and could kind of work with them to kind of initiate the project. Um, but that one's really cool, both technologically, actually, the AIDS Memorial Pathway is as well. Um, so just go a little techie for a minute. So Monumental Conversations um, 
generally it uh, uses more traditional AR kind of tap to place features and um, marker based plus slam. So, um, you know, pretty standard AR tech and at this point, and then, um, but the, both the, um, AIDS Memorial Pathway, which is here in Seattle, and the Blackhawk Project um, in San Francisco um, use AR cloud technology. Mm-hmm. Um, we work very closely with a company called um, Augmented City, um, which is they use computer vision geniuses. And um, so we're using basically your, your camera. So we had to scan the environments ahead of time and create like huge 3D maps. And uh, your, your camera is basically reading the world around you and instantiating the content um, based on that. And um, so that, that was exciting from that standpoint is just learning to work with that new technology and um, working really closely on that. But again, working closely with the stories, I think the, um, or with the community, excuse me, uh, one of the cool things about uh, Blackhawk is it's um, all of these projects, you can update the content pretty easily, but the Blackhawk was created with that intent. Mm-hmm. And so we recreated there um, a historic jazz club, world famous jazz club that used to be in the Tenderloin neighborhood of San Francisco, which is generally one of the most challenging that's in America today. But they have this like amazing history of innovation and just radical inclusion. That is really what people associate with San Francisco, but a lot actually is in the Tenderloin. And so uh, that club was destroyed or um, raised in um, 1963, I think, if I remember the date correctly. So we recreated that in a fun, playful way. And so we worked with the Boys and Girls Club um, and youth in the Tenderloin to design stories that told the, told the history mm. of the Tenderloin and the Jazz Club. And, you know, they got they, they picked and designed their stories. Um, and then we also worked with um, local artists to create kind of digital paintings on the inside of the Blackhawk, just like you would in any other restaurant these days where they have rotating artworks. And so the idea is that those stories and the youth's artworks and the artist's artworks get rotated out and just like they would in a normal gallery. And wow. so we're planning the second, the second iteration of that um, hopefully in, in, in May and, you know, holding community workshops for creation and, um, you know, becomes a whole tech education component, right. art, music education. So, so I think that one is really special and fun to us. It was one of the early, it started conceptually years ago. And so it just finally came to fruition after COVID and everything in August. And um, yeah, we're just really excited about, you know, where that project's going to go or continue to go and grow and, and to use it as a platform for community, for the community to come together and as exhibit space for the community. And real quick, like if I wanted, if one wanted to, you know, look at these things through their phone, like, is there an app to download or how does one engage with these, these products? Good question. So um, uh, all three of those are app based. Okay. Um, the, um, and the, you know, the technology is changing so quickly. So that might not be true a year from now, like the same projects we might be able to do in a very different way a year from now, or even six months from now. Um, but the monumental conversations and the AIDS Memorial pathway, those apps are both um, in, in both app stores, the Apple and Google Play Store. And they do have remote capabilities. So you're not going to get the full Whamadyne experience like it was designed on site. They do privilege people, um, the user experience on the site, but you can't do them um, remotely, have remote features that you can do and get the educational information that is in those. Um, The Blackhawk does not. Um, That's largely uh, just because of the way that technology was applied on that project. And it's literally a full-scale building. So... So, you know, the other ones, we I guess we could make a little half size or something, but um, maybe we'll do that moving forward. But right now, you the only way to access that one, it is an app, but the only way to see the content and experience that one is being on the site. Gotcha. I'm looking, I'm looking at my uh, Google Play Store right now. And I see Novabuy has a, um, a page with all the different apps that... Oh, great. Okay. 
you know that. That's probably our developer page, but that's not the view we typically see it in. So yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, like, glad oh, know, I'm glad to know it's there. It's there. <laughs> we'll, we'll, have, we'll, we'll, we'll reference it uh, on, on our show notes as well. But yeah. thank you so much for the conversation. It's fascinating stuff. And I think just 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 got so much tremendous potential and such important work. And and gosh, we could talk for a long time, you know, about these materials. But kindred uh, uh, spirits here, I think. So I think so. Oh, yeah, we could, we could. we'll keep I, talking. We'll stop recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was this was fabulous. Thank you so much. And just uh, you had great insights and everything. I'm not a surprise, but I uh, really appreciate you sharing your perspective as well. We want to thank Julia Biabout, CEO and Creative Director of Novobuy, for exploring how we collectively form memories and how her work to remake place and monuments in Richmond, Virginia, and the importance and the passion of bringing that to life and driving her work. You can learn more about Julia, Novobuy, and all their various projects in our show notes. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. You know, share your thoughts on collective memory and recreating place. How do you wrestle with memory in your own kind of design work or your experience work? How might we incorporate a greater number of voices in the creation of collective memories? As always, you can shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com or get in the conversation on our LinkedIn page. And once again, as always, we want to thank everybody for their continued support of the podcast in listening, in donating, in giving your ideas, in subscribing and recommending and anything else you do to make this podcast possible. Remember, you can always make a contribution to support the cost of the podcast through our website where you can find a link to buy us a coffee. Also, if you'd like to sponsor an episode of Experience by Design, please feel free to send us an email so we can chat about making that possible. New ideas, old ideas, memories, both faded and vivid. You can always share that feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. And if you want to subscribe to get up to date on all the Experience by Design news, head over to our website to be part of the Experience by Design community. And with that, Be safe, be happy, be well, be kind, and please be here for the next experience by design. See you then.